Digital Marketing Radio, episode 225. Are these the top 10 ever Digital Marketing Radio episodes? DigitalMarketingRadio.com And could this be the last ever episode of Digital Marketing Radio? Flying solo with David Bain. David Bain. Hello and welcome to episode 225 of DMR. And yes... This could be the very last episode. I'm David Bain and I've been hosting Digital Marketing Radio for more than three years now. And in that time, I've had the privilege of interviewing many of the world's leading digital marketers right here in this very podcast. I've had a lot of fun, learned a lot and built some great relationships that I'm sure will last for many years to come. However, there comes a time when your life gets busy And you need to make some tough decisions when it comes to priorities. And I'm afraid that this means that I've decided to pause recording new episodes of DMR. It could be that I start recording again in a few months' time. Or it could be that the show as we know it doesn't return. Or it could be that a listener decides to make me an offer to buy the whole show. But whatever happens in the future, I'll certainly be taking the next few months off to focus on other things. Of course, I'll still be keeping busy online, so if you're a professional marketer or a podcaster, please add me to your LinkedIn network. So I've got the slash David Bain profile, so I'm easy to find. And of course, you can always follow me on Twitter at David Bain. But I don't want to leave with a murmur. I want to highlight some of the outstanding content that my previous Digital Marketing Radio guests have already shared. And I'd like to encourage you to browse the back catalogue of episodes too. So on this episode 225, and possibly the final episode, I'd like to highlight 10 previously published episodes that jump out at me as being particularly special. Now, I'm quite wary about doing this, because there really are some special moments in every single interview. So it's not to say that these episodes will be the most valuable ones for every listener, but for some reason they jumped out at me. Maybe you feel differently, so if so, tell me at David Bain on Twitter. But in order of publication, from oldest to most recent, here are the 10 episodes, for different reasons, that stood out for me. I'm going to start out with episode number 16 of DMR and Amy Schmitter. So Amy's a rapidly rising social video marketing star, and she was someone who was cutting edge in her advice. Here's Amy talking about the value of tailoring your content with one particular viewer in mind. I mean, you want to be as specific as possible. A lot of people think of a general audience, but the more specific you can be, the better you're going to be. A lot of uh, people think that that will limit you, but the reality is even if your audience is uh, a very, very specific one, it doesn't mean that you can't help more people than that. There may be others that come in because of that. I mean, for instance, I hear this example a lot. Red Bull has a very specific audience and it's very adventurous young men. who love like these crazy sports and like doing flips on skateboards and crazy stuff like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what they do in a marketing uh, respect and the product that they have does not necessarily reach other people. But they know very specifically who they want to talk to so they can stay very aligned with their brand. When you do that, it's not that you're limiting yourself. You're actually making it much more likely 
that you'll have a very highly targeted audience. So you really, if you can think of one person, describe them to the fullest, explain their day, talk about what their daily life is like, what struggles are they going through so that you're thinking of that person every time you turn the camera on and it just feels like the content is made for them. Next up, we'll fast forward to episode 70 and a very self-confident chap called Saul Colt. So Saul's very original in his thinking and he isn't scared to do something very different. Here's Saul talking about the importance of word of mouth marketing. Well, so there are two forms of word of mouth marketing. There's the creating, you know, experiences that people are going to share. And that's definitely, you know, one of the the core pillars of word of mouth marketing. But there's also just being like a really great company and creating, you know, great products that people want to talk about or creating, you know, customer service that people are going to want to talk about. You know, one of the the big sort of things about word of mouth that, that people either smart people realize or don't realize that everybody focuses on social and and you know tracking sort of conversations in that respect but you know 82 percent and and usually whenever I throw out a number I just say I just made that number up but that's actually a number that I read somewhere so 82 percent of all word of mouth happens offline so word of mouth marketing happens you know in line at the grocery store and at kids soccer games and it's any referral from a trusted source so if I were to tell you Dave that this is the greatest movie of all time, you'd be probably, you know, iffy, you know, 50-50 chance that we have the same taste in movies or something like that. But if a friend tells you and you know their taste and you trust them, um, you know, that's going to be a, a qualified sort of referral. Word of mouth is getting all of your friends to tell you um, to do something. A lot of people use influence as a term when they talk about word of mouth marketing. I think influence is I think influence is a negative term, and I think that people spend much too much time on it. I, you know, I think word of mouth marketing should be this beautiful thing that it's really more about inspiring other people to, you know, discover things and learn about new things and and share those stories. So, yes, it's about you know creating experiences and things like that, but it's also just knowing that people are going to talk about your business all the time. So you don't always have to give them content, but you have to give them something to talk about and you have to be, you know, give them a positive feeling about your business. Now let's go to episode number 96 and my interview with someone who is a prominent SEO expert and who's also become a very good friend and that's Lucas Zelezny. Here's me asking Lucas about the impact of social media on SEO. If you would ask me this question a couple of years ago, that would be probably difficult to answer. Maybe I would try to make this up, but right now I have enough proof uh, that it really works. And this is not just empty words that, oh, you should be visible there and there. And I have a presentation about how you can generate synergy between social media from one side and SEO from the other side. So, you know, like, Every time you're writing engaging post or something really interesting, you can see correlation that if you have lots of shares on Twitter, lots of shares on LinkedIn, lots of shares on Facebook, some on some point, people will start creating content around your content, linking to this content and so on and so on. So everybody who is asking me, should I be visible on, on social media these days or does social media help me with my SEO? I'm absolutely like, yes, thousand person. If you can create something which is very engaging on social media, your SEO factors and all the ingredients that need to be in the place like backlinks and so on and so on 
will start growing as well. Now let's forward to episode 121, and that was with the personal branding expert Phil Palin. Here's Phil talking about his definition of what he considers to be an ugly brand. An ugly brand is something that someone does for themselves. So they've taken a hobby, something that they do that they get enjoyment out of, and they've created what they think is a brand or a business that's going to help all kinds of people. Let me give you an example. Someone wants to open up a restaurant or a coffee shop. Since we're drinking coffee, David Bain, since it's 7.53 a.m. on the West Coast, um, <laughs> We so a a an ugly brand is something someone does for themselves without uh, really giving consideration into what people need. So they create a coffee shop, they put it right beside a Starbucks, and they do it because it's something they've always wanted to do. But then it goes out of business within six months because they don't satisfy a need. I'm t- constantly trying to tell people that if your brand is set up to help people with something they need, not just a want. People don't really budget for wants once in a while, but everything that they buy or consume or purchase, it is a need. It must be something people need. So an ugly brand is something we do for ourselves. A beautiful brand is something that's set up to serve others. So really, truly, I shocked you and that it has nothing yet to do with the visuals. The visuals play a, an important role when we're building something that people remember or something people notice. But certainly the foundation of all of this is business. I always say branding is business. I don't just make something look pretty and send them off. You know, we 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 work on the the branding, the visual, the build, and then promote it using intelligent strategy. So it's twofold. Next up is the suitcase entrepreneur herself, Natalie Sisson on episode 124. So here's us talking about how quickly someone might expect to grow an online income to support themselves. As somebody who's traveled the world for the last five years, traveling full-time is actually a lot cheaper than people think because you don't have all the overheads of like mortgages and cars and community sports and events and utilities and then suddenly all these other things like buying stuff. So you can live quite cheaply if you really want in different parts of the world. Obviously, some are more expensive than others. So If you were to set something up and at the same time move to another place that was more affordable so that you could start during that time and have lower expenses, then really it just comes down to what do you need to survive and hopefully thrive each month. And then based off that, you can figure out how much you'd need to earn and what type of a business um, you could start with and and how long it's going to take for you to build that income up. And I think something that I'm seeing people do more and more these days is if they're in a job um, is to start a side hustle or something where they're earning freelancing um, income on the side. And they know that when they go to take that leap and quit completely, they can cover it with the income they're getting from that side hustle or freelancing job. And in the sixth interview I've selected, this is episode 129. And it's with the ever eloquent Mark Traphagen. I talked to Mark about a concept that he thinks a lot about. And that's anti-fragile marketing. Well, it's a concept that I've been thinking a lot about recently and are going to be producing a lot of content myself on coming up. Uh, It's not original to me, but it comes out of a book that I read recently that kind of rocked my world in a number of ways. It's a book that's been out uh, since 2012. I think, believe in 2012, it was a New York Times bestseller uh, titled Anti-Fragile by an author named uh, Nicholas Nahib Talib. Uh, Taleb, I don't know how to pronounce that uh, exactly. I haven't heard it said, 
but um, Taleb is famous for a couple of other books. Um, one of the, probably the most famous that people might know him from is a book called The Black Swan. Uh, and The Black Swan is his concept of basically uh, that thing which we never expect to happen will probably happen eventually. Uh, the certainty of uncertainty, uh, the, the, um, the inevitability of chaos in anything, no matter how well laid our plans might be. And so uh, the book Antifragile takes that to the next level or to a broader level and, and maybe to a more positive, attempted a more positive take on that to say, if the worst thing that could possibly happen inevitably sooner or later, given enough time, will happen, <laughs> how do we build our lives? How do we build economic structures? How do we build families? How do we build societies? And you can apply it everywhere. I'm applying it to marketing. How do we build marketing plans for our businesses that uh, that are anti-fragile? And uh, uh, in a moment, I can describe what, what's meant by that concept of anti-fragile. Next up is a chap who I'm very glad that I met through the now defunct social video platform Blab, and that's Roberto Blake on episode 146 of DMR. Here's Roberto's thoughts on whether the number of your subscribers on YouTube is actually important. They're not important in YouTube almost at all. Now, they help you in a different way. It's not the number of subscribers. It's that the, if you have a loyal following, that will benefit you in the things that YouTube does care about. It's not the subscribers by themselves. what that means, meaning this. If somebody has earned that kind of following on YouTube, they've done it by being good. Talent brings people in. If you're a performer that has been doing something for five years, if you're Lindsey Sterling and you've been, you know, in the game um, doing uh, her unique version of music and dance and violin and just crushing it and bring something completely unique, she can sell out Madison Square Garden, right? Mm. But if you're somebody who decides one day that, oh, Lindsay's cool, I'm going to dance and play the violin or I'm going to dance and play the drums, and you have the expectation of selling out Madison Square Garden because, well, I've been working hard for a year and I've been working hard for two years. Lindsey Sterling has been playing the violin since she was like in sixth grade. And she did that all the way up through college before she ever became a YouTuber. So she put in the work to become good. And she was on America's, uh, you know, um, America's Got Talent, uh, where she didn't uh, end up doing very well, again, according to Pierce Morgan. But six years, seven years later, he's forced to eat those words when he told her she would never show out, sell out a show in Vegas, right? Yeah. It's, it's like hard work. So if someone said to me, well, I work hard on my YouTube videos. Why am I not growing? I would, I would question it. I'd be like, well, you realize that YouTube is about videos online, right? And they would be like, well, duh. I was like, so are you good at making videos? Are you good on camera? Are you good at editing videos? And okay, cool. So are all these other people who have been doing it longer than you. So where do you stand in your effort and your journey if you're a first-time filmmaker or a first-time video editor or a first-time you're getting comfortable on camera? How are you more interesting or more comfortable or more polished or as good to take five minutes of someone's attention away from somebody who's been doing it eight years? Forward a couple of episodes to number 148, and that was a discussion with Rand Fishkin from Moz. Here's Rand talking about a strange SEO phenomena that he's encountered. So someone mentioned, I was at a Search Love conference, I think it was in, uh, was it in London last year, and someone mentioned, hey, you know, we noticed this odd phenomena where 
we had written an article uh, about web marketing of some kind. It wasn't ranking particularly well, like it didn't, didn't blow anyone away, but it was picked up by the Moz Top 10 email lists. And if you're not familiar with the Moz Top 10, it's subscribed to by a little over 300,000 uh, marketers. It gets very high engagement. The top few links on there often get you know, 10, 20, even 30,000 visits uh, sometimes when, when the newsletter comes out. And they said, when the Moz newsletter came out, when the Moz Top 10 came out, our rankings shot up. Yesterday, I got an email from someone that the same thing had happened to them. Uh, and that's actually the third email that I've gotten from someone who's been in the Moz Top 10. And so a few months ago, we started tracking uh, some keyword searches around things that we were putting in the Moz Top 10 to see if the rankings went up after the newsletter came out. And there were a few testing problems, but early signals were, damn, that's weird. Like it, it sure looks like when something goes in the Moz Top 10 email, its rankings go up, especially the ones that get more clicks. And might your hypothesis be that the fact that that site had suddenly got a surge in traffic resulted in the increase in rankings? And if so, is it possible, potentially, with pay-per-click advertising to buy traffic and have that result in an I mean, you know, it, so if I were Google, here's how I would be doing it. I would be accumulating all of the clickstream data that I can get, right? And they have full clickstream data from Chrome, from Android, uh, from all the desktop devices where they have plugins installed, from Google Search itself, right? They, they have just tons and tons of, of data. They, they have Google Fiber data, right? All the um, infrastructure, web infrastructure that they're part of, where they can see all these, all these clicks and stuff. So they, you know, they're collecting a tremendous amount of data of just where are people going on the web and what are they doing while they're on the web. If I were them, I would take all those signals and then I would cut out anything that is paid, right? So I can see anytime traffic comes from a paid source. Anything that's organic, uh, type in, uh, bookmark, direct, um, referred from an email, you know, an organic email list, uh, you know, coming through social media like Facebook or, or through uh, the Moz Top 10, right? Uh, coming through whatever it is. Whatever it is, lots of people clicking on a link on the homepage of Yahoo, uh, lots of people clicking on a link in Hacker News. If I saw a lot of those signals, they were coming from an organic source, I might be very tempted to give a rankings boost because probably you're seeing a highly relevant, new, useful piece of content that searchers would want to see. That. That is total speculation on my part. I can, Google has never confirmed that they do this, but they definitely are collecting that data. Now let's go to episode 166, and that's an interview with Larry Kim, founder of WordStream. Here's Larry with an interesting view on the difference between search marketing and Facebook marketing. I would argue that search, uh, search marketing, so both paid and organic search, isn't actually growing your market, okay, David? So, like, okay. if you're doing PPC and SEO, what you're doing is you're harvesting the existing market uh, of people who are already searching for the products and services that you're selling. You know, you're, you're, you're going after uh, the existing market. Uh, you're not actually creating demand that didn't exist. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. Whereas in Facebook, if you're, if you're talking about your products and services to, to your target market, 
they may have not yet decided to buy this thing yet. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so you're actually generating new demand uh, for, for the product where, where it didn't exist previously. It's an important distinction. And I think, uh, you know, more, uh, more mature, smarter companies realize the importance of both activities. And finally, interview number 10 is Joe Altfelbaum. Here's Joe's answer to my question. Can selling digital marketing services just using digital marketing work? Or is face-to-face also important? I once heard an author by the name of Jeffrey Gittimer say that people hate to be sold. Hate to be sold things, but they love to buy. People love to buy. So when you talk about selling digital marketing services... Some people, when you're trying to sell them anything, they feel uncomfortable. Um, but your question is, is uh, something that I always thought about as I was growing my agency. And what I learned was it depends on what type of customer you want to have. You really want to think about who is your customer. Do you want a transactional type of relationship with your customers or do you want a transformational type of relationship? You want somebody that's just going to buy something from you because they believe that they're getting value from it in that moment and they're going to go to the lowest cost provider? Or are you going to build a relationship with that customer and ultimately be able to grow the customer and make a bigger impact? And it really depends on what you're selling, how you're selling it, how many you want to sell, what your price point is. If you have a very low price point and you want many, many customers, then you have to use digital marketing to sell your own product, whether it's a digital marketing product or whether it's any other product. But if you have a very high value product that has a significant price ticket on it, then you can get leads using digital marketing, but ultimately you're going to have to build a relationship with that person so that you can get them as a client. So there are some agencies that only sell a few hundred dollars per month program or a one-time a few hundred dollar a month product. Or there are some agencies that sell products that are tens of thousands of dollars a month. It really depends what space you want to be in. If you just want to sell ebooks, then the best way to go about that is to have a really great landing page, have a, a great PPC campaign or a great social media campaign, get people to your page and have them buy your ebook, have them buy your digital products. But if you want to sell more comprehensive services like coaching and so on, sometimes it takes more of a, a lead nurturing campaign and getting people, building a relationship with them that will help you ultimately close the deal. So there you go. That is my selection of the top 10 digital marketing radio episodes. But what do you think? Do you agree? Part of me just really didn't want to do this. There are so many great episodes that maybe just didn't spring to mind as I was putting the list together. All I wanted to do was highlight a few great conversations that perhaps you, dear listener, haven't had the opportunity to listen to yet. Hopefully, it'll be a particularly useful starting point for new listeners and not a sore point for guests who aren't featured. Sorry if that's you. But for now, that's new episodes of DMR on hold. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it could be that I start recording again in a few months' time. It could be that the show, as we know it, doesn't return. Or it could be, even, that you, dear listener, decides to make me an offer to buy the whole show. Connect with me on LinkedIn or email me on david at digitalmarketingradio.com if you'd like to chat about that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining me on the journey so far. I'm sure that we will talk 
we'll be in touch at some point in the future. But until we meet again, as ever, be fantabulous and do one thing that scares you. Adios. Yeah.